In the year 2000, 19-year-old Zayed Mubarak was sentenced to 90 days in prison for shoplifting six pounds worth of goods. On the morning of his scheduled release, Zayed was murdered by his cellmate in a racially aggravated attack. The trust set up in his name works to change the prison system, ensuring racial justice and fairness. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Katuna Tinzazi is the Programme Director at the Zayed Mubarak Trust, which is a national charity in the UK, and she's been in that role since 2011. She's also previously held the position of Executive Director at the Union 21st Century, a national NGO in Georgia, running projects and initiatives to protect the rights of religious and ethnic minorities. Katuna also holds several advisory roles, including Her Majesty's Inspector of Prisons Thematic Review Advisory Group, HMPPS, External Scrutiny and Advisory Panel, with Equal, which is Action for Race Equality in the Criminal Justice System, and with MOJ Reducing Reoffending Third Sector Advisory Group, as well as several others, actually. Katuna's also on to her second master's degree, which is in Criminology, Penology and Management at the University of Cambridge. And on top of all of that, she's going to be chatting to me today in her fourth language, so a very warm welcome to Katuna Tinzazi. Thank you. Thank you very much, Oba. It was a um, um, very lovely introduction um, and happy to chat, yes. Great. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really pleased to, to speak with you and it's such important work that, that you're doing at your organisation. So I think that's a great place to start. Um, I know you've probably explained about Zaid's tragic death a thousand times, but I think it's still remains an important place for us to start our conversation. So maybe for those people who haven't heard about the Zayed Mubarak Trust and, and where it comes from, could you tell us a little bit about the background? Yes, of course. Um, so 20 years ago, on 20th of March, Zaid was brutally murdered by his cellmate in an unprovoked racist attack. Zaid had been sentenced to 90 days detention for theft, he had been arrested for stealing razors worth of six pounds. Mm. Zaid was battered whilst he slept only four hours before his release with a wooden table leg. He fell into a coma and died a week later. He was just 19. His family's sense of loss and pain was made worse when the circumstances of his racist murder was exposed. Mm. Any racist murder is deplorable, um, unacceptable, and a personal tragedy. But the facts in Zaid's case, which I first heard about um, in 2007 at an international mm. conference, were stark and beyond belief. 186 failed opportunities to save his life. Institutional racism that contributed to his murder. Many people rightfully recognize Stephen Lawrence's name, remember his racist murder in 1993, and know um, about the Stephen Lawrence public inquiry. Mm. Side's name may be less rec recognizable to some, but his racist murder in 2000 was described as the prison services Stephen Lawrence moment. Mm. 
Um, the prison service admitted fault. Investigations were undertaken by the prison service, the police and CRE, uh, which um, stands for Commission for Race Equality and now it's Equality and Human Rights Commission. But the Mubarak family wanted an independent public inquiry. The Mubarak family, with the support of many amazing human rights campaigners, fought for a public inquiry and successfully used a Human Rights Act legally challenge to secure a public inquiry to hold the state to public account for its failures. Mm. The public inquiry led by Justice Keith made 88 far-reaching recommendations and in 2003-2008 it led to many significant changes in policy and procedures including mm allowing information sharing to identify high-risk factors um, known as self-sharing risk assessment, for example. Mm. Um, I, we usually get asked how much has changed since mm. I's death, and I yeah. usually come back with counter-question about what does it take to transform this culture uh, mm. uh, and affect the change. Um, there is no magic bullet, in my mm. view, um, but it's not also not very complex. In fact, many of your previous guests, whom I respect very much as brilliant academics and practitioners, have been mm. speaking about what, what does it take to make real change and to mm. avoid such tragedies. Yeah. In my view, it all comes down to simple principles, respect, fairness, humanity. These three principles require commitment, compassion and generous resources to nurture mm. and flourish. I don't see much of this in many prisons I visit. Don't get me wrong, I am also well aware how difficult a job yeah. of those working in prisons is and I met many fantastic people who genuinely want to improve things but as I said, commitment or compassion on their own can mm. only get you so far. So I think it's about systemic changes. Yeah, and obviously, yeah, that's something that takes a long time and lots of small steps to get there. And yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tragic story, and there's so many things that that we could talk about related to that. I wondered if I could ask you about one aspect of it, <clears throat> because it's um, there's you know you talked about. You mentioned there were 186 chances for the prison yes. to intercede at some point. So what, what do you mean by that? What could they have done? Um, for example, there was um, one of the opportunities was to actually take seriously Zaid's complaints. Hence mm. why we are so focused about improving complaint systems in prisons. Zaid mm. made numerous complaints um, where he was asking for help where he found his cellmate to be um, strange and he did not feel safe around him in his cell. Mm. Um, and these complaints were not taken seriously. There were also um, um, some assumptions that he also approached uh, independent monitoring board with complaint. Um, I, th I think the point I'm trying to make is we uh, complaints do matter for people and it should mm. be taken seriously and it certainly was one of those 186 opportunities which could have saved his life. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's and you mentioned cell sharing risk assessments, and I've I was involved in that when I was working in prisons, and yeah. So for those people that haven't heard of that phrase before, could you t- explain a little bit about how that's a really important point then in terms of who you know in it, across England, Wales, a lot of the time people are doubled up in so two people in one cell as as normal now, um, and so we have to think about who gets put together. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Um, absolutely. Um, self-sharing risk assessment um, is something, I guess, it's um, like a routine, should be a routine procedure for every single person who works in prisons. And as you said, you are well aware of it, um, having experience of working in prison previously. Um, and that's, I guess, where um, our focus is about I, how do I identify individuals mm. who are particularly vulnerable of sharing cells with certain individuals. Um, and also it's about, you know, how, how do you address people's views if they hold negative views uh, about any different groups? Mm. Um, I don't think we do a lot about addressing these views. Um, and there is always space to improve on this work, um, but it is something absolutely uh, necessary to uh, take into account to ensure mm. safety of those in uh, in the care. Yeah, and do you think the work? I mean, the work that the Zayd Mubarak Trust does. Maybe we could talk a little bit about in what you actually do inside the prisons and who you work with because is it with the prison officers themselves or is it the management of the prisons and the governors that you try to get through to what's um what's Um, the process i'd like to think that we work with everyone who Mm. um, represents uh, different levels of uh, power structures in a given prison uh, because what we do is not um, necessarily like a tick box exercise it's a holistic Mm. approach when we uh, provide our external scrutiny and support work, um, we look at different aspects of equality and diversity. Um, for example, um, discrimination complaint system is one very um, strong element of it, mm. and scrutinizing uh, discrimination complaints, investigation of discrimination complaints. We also sit at equalities meetings, just I did in this, this morning, mm. um, and we also engage directly with prisoners, with families, mm. we take complaints directly, and we also organise annual race equality surveys just to kind of take the temperature and mm. um, uh, evaluate perceptions of prisoners. From our point of view, perceptions really do matters. And uh, and um, it's important just to kind of have this holistic approach rather than just tick box exercise of only looking of one aspect of what constitutes a humane conditions in prisons. Mm. Yeah, and I, I know you've you said that people always ask you about have have things changed, and then you have your counter question. But can I just ask you, may have you noticed over this summer of twenty twenty, obviously race. And racism has been on the front of, uh, well, at the front of a lot of people's minds. And so I'm just wondering, have you noticed a difference? Has that translated into the meetings that you've been going to? You know, you just mentioned you were at a meeting this morning. So what are those meetings like and have, have they mm-hmm. been influenced by this, this summer? Um, I guess you are implying 
the whole BLM movement, Black Lives yeah, Matter, sorry, which I have uh, that's yeah. no problem at all, because yeah. um, I guess this um, summer in whole 2020, we really went through very tough times with COVID and plus this historic moment of Black Lives Matter movement, um, which um, really um, incre has increased the awareness of structural inequalities that flared up through George Floyd's murder. I wish, um, however, I wish this moment be utilized more effectively in relation to prisons. Mm. The protests offered people an opportunity to join this collective uh, demand of bringing meaningful change and radical change. Mm. Uh, prisons and the criminal justice system, as we currently know them, do not effectively reduce crime protect and support society to thrive in unison. Radical and deep reforms are needed, and this is not a new argument. Many prominent unnamed people have been making such arguments for a long time, and I really hope this will come to fruition in our lifetime. If we don't do the work continuously and passionately, even if it feels like no mm. one is listening, if we don't help to create the conditions or possibility for change, then a moment like this, created by George Floyd's killing, unfortunately, will arrive and we can do nothing mm. about it. Um, this is a perfect example of our being able, to, for us being able to seize the moment and turn it into something that's radical and transformative, yeah. truly. Yeah, so much to consider and, and actually, you know, in, in your sort of introduction to that answer there, you mentioned how this current moment is, is there's so much going on with it. And as well as the Black Lives Matter movement, there's also obviously COVID we've been dealing with. And I know that you have a specific campaign called A Record of Our Own, which talks a little bit about, well, it looks into the impact of COVID on Black, Asian, minority, ethnic prisoners, prison leavers and their families. And so, yeah, I wondered if you'd, like to tell us a little bit about this specific movement that you're involved in and and how that relates to the normal sort of work of the of the trust yeah um so a record of our own campaign um is a joint initiative with two other brilliant charities the traveler movement and pops um and our initial um thinking was just to have a initiative which would look at the impact of COVID-19 on Black, Asian and minority ethnic uh, prisoners, including Gypsy Roma traveller individuals mm. in prisons, impact of the lockdown and everything what was going on, which we had very little information about um, um, since um, the lockdown. Um, and um, campaign has been running since June. Uh, we um, we are taking evidence directly from prisoners um, who they are writing to us directly about their stories and sharing their experiences. We are talking to prison leavers and we are and also talking to families who have got their loved ones um, in prisons. Um, I guess we, our aim is just to identify any lessons that can be mm. learned how um, COVID-19 has impacted on these groups, but also how prison service 
have managed to reduce any disproportionate negative impact on uh, Black, Asian, minority ethnic communities. And um, what can be learned for any future uh, pandemic? Um, um, so that's we, we will be publishing our report sometime in early 2021, mm -hmm. um, and hopefully it will be used uh, productively to learn lessons. And if not, as from the title of the campaign, it will remain a record mm -hmm. of our own. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's so much to to consider and so much unknown at the moment. But it really does seem that the existing disparities and inequalities have just been exacerbated during through the COVID. Yes, um, yes, it is. And um, um, I, 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 as I said, it's all about uh, taking radical and transformative yeah. um, changes. Um, Unfortunately, uh, you know, we've, I mentioned about a lot of initiatives put mm. in place to transform experience of ethnic minority prisoners in 2003-2008 following um, Zayt's murder, um, but um, changes only happen when it's continuously yeah. worked on. So it's not something you would just um, uh, implement, tick box, and shelve because it has to be mm. implemented yeah. constantly. Um, so that's how we look at also imp uh, implementing recommendations yeah. coming from the public inquiry, um, justice key public inquiry, as well as um, other consecutive public yeah. inquiries. And and you, you've been doing this specific kind of work for nearly a decade now with the Zayd Mubarak Trust. And so just wondering for you personally, like how... What is it that drives you? What got you into this in the first place, and what makes you want to to keep working on this subject matter, which is really, you know, heavy and emotional, stressful kind of sub subject matter? So, mm -hmm. how do you find dealing with something that's, you know, talking about trauma the whole time? Mm -hmm. Um, yes, I agree. It's not mm. something <laughs> everybody's mm. cup of tea. Um, and my work in race equality across the prison system is completely focused on human mm. rights as it evolves around three uh, principles, which I already mentioned before, respect, fairness, and I would add also kindness. Um, not only in work, but as principles in life mm. also, which make uh, makes delivering and designing human rights-based projects as organic process mm. for me. Concepts of human rights, human dignity and humanity are often understood in the same context as worthiness and deserving. That's why I feel projects within the criminal justice system in particular can be adversely mm. affected. It is a challenging role, just like any human rights role, uh, but gets easier when carried out with a group of like-minded individuals. In the criminal justice sector, I have met many people, including some of your previous mm. guests, who are not afraid to swim against the tide and do it without harming themselves or others. And I'm truly inspired by this balance, and I hope I will get it right one mm. day. One thing I'm learning now is how not to be crushed by overwhelming characters mm. um, and the weight of the institutions we set out to mm. change. 
I'm learning to appreciate little victories and to take them as the launch pad for new goals and developing further strategies. I have heard from others doing similar work um, that you do it without expecting to receive public mm. credit. It is yeah. like a vocational yeah. uh, profession. And I'm really lucky to wake up every day for work I love. Mm. It is challenging, but the more challenging it gets, the more appealing it becomes <laughs> in a, in a yeah. weird way. Um, the daily challenges also mean coming back with a new strategy, new approaches, and even a new mm. project. Um, our rehabilitative work involves connecting directly with people, as well as policy mm. and system development, of which I enjoy both aspects with the latter being less rewarding in terms of feeling and seeing the tangible results mm. of your work. And getting into rehabilitation and integration work, even back in Georgia, is due to my awareness of the fact that we all have a certain measure of responsibility to those who have made it possible for us to take mm. advantage of the opportunities. And for me, that's my family. I see that unconditional love and support from my family as a privilege that many people, especially those I come across in the criminal justice system, don't have mm. in life. Um, of course, the door, door of you know the opportunity was not open as widely as I would have wished to, but it was enough for me to squeeze through that door and be where yeah. I am now. I have learned that um, you pay back to your parents and people who helped by doing the same for your own children and for others. And I think the importance of advocacy work for me and for my organization, um, advocacy for and with less privileged groups or individuals is precisely um, because it allows you to give back and to consider yourself as an individual who may have achieved whatever but to be part of a bigger process mm. as well, bigger process, bigger movement and cause. And I think this suits uh, people like me who in their hearts desire to change the world, but might not be destined to do this by design. So instead of disappointment of not being able to do great things, I think we can do small things, but with the greatest love and dedication. And that's what's exactly my organization yeah. is trying to do i think that's a really you know really balanced and healthy way to do it. i mean yes i wish i could say that i felt as as balanced in thinking about the work as, as much as you've just explained it i think yeah there's so many people that feel real passion for want wanting change and wanting to like you say change the world and it's it's not realistic to be able to think you want to change you know entire systems by yourself but it's like you say those small wins that they'll all add up and then when we work collectively then those small wins very quickly add up and yeah I mean I talked to you a lot about that but you you know I'm glad you mentioned Georgia because I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of that formative time and and what it was that inspired you to get into human rights work there I know you did some some significant legal aid work while you're in Georgia but for those who aren't familiar with the context there could you tell us a little bit about well the things that you feel passionate about in terms of human rights justice and, and georgia mm -hmm. um yes thanks for asking about it it seems like a long journey when i reflect on it 
but not because of the duration, um, but because of the many challenges throughout the journey. I've been passionate about human rights for as long as I can remember, but um, I did not always know it was human rights, mm. as I did not grow up with the term. So it was not something which I would pin down as a human rights work necessarily. Right, right. Um, I realized that even if you are not familiar with the concept, you can still be viewed as an advocate of human rights, as long as you believe and live by principles of respect, fairness and kindness. Mm. I believe that these three principles are um, are the basic of human rights standards um, and you can find them in obviously in more formal ways but that's kind of underpins the principles of international human rights standards mm. um, and I will never forget my first advocacy project for street children which I founded at the age of 16 oh wow that's young children living on the streets without any support from state agencies was, was a big issue, um, huge issue was when I was growing up in Georgia. And as you might know, Georgia went through an awful civil war following a painful separation from the Soviet Union. And because of economic hardship, certain things were um, kind of normalized mm -hmm. to some extent, which in my opinion should never been acceptable in any society. I I was um, of the opinion that if you do not actively stand against something, you risk of becoming part of that normalization, mm. which I believe was the main contributor for the abuse of rights for certain groups what, in what kind society. of things do you mean when you what kind of things were normalized? Um, I guess for me it's about just seeing see, it was about seeing children and considering them this kind of collective informal term mm. street children that's when I look at it now I just can't believe that we actually you know live through this and mm. it 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 will it just kind of took my personal initiative to start so and it, I, I was not of course alone you know there were other people like-minded individuals as I said that makes it easier but it but we were not many we were few and um, I think the whole like um, phenomena of having street children, mm. um, it's something awful. And um, um, but it really taught me a lot. Um, um, I mean, the experience um, of you know starting advocate advocating on their behalf and trying kind of find out what can be done uh, from state structures. Mm. And everything which I went through with my friends um, back then, it, it, it really taught me invaluable lessons about social justice work, about my character, about human rights in general. Mm. Um, for example, I've learned that some fights are not meant to be fought alone. You know, bigger structural issues should be challenged as part of a collective right. of like-minded individuals. Mm. And that issue was something which I could not wrestle alone. Um, I find this method of operation um, with others empowering. And is, is this how I, I think achieve the best success? That's when I find individuals who can fight my battles with me. Mm. We have shared um, uh, values, shared principles. And um, 
when I said also learning about my own character, I've learned that I'm most effective when I work with small teams. Okay. It allows more flexibility, focus, and connectivity with my team members. And working with, within a team, um, the small team, has, um, has also allowed me to thrive as a leader mm. and also as a human being. Um, and um, the process usually starts with just uh, having a joint passion for mm -hmm. shared values and eventually grows into loyalty to organizations, to their causes, to their principles. Mm. And hence why you've noticed that uh, over a 20-year career, I've only worked with two organizations and I plan to remain with one of them as long as I can. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, it is very different to how a lot of people manage their careers, usually bouncing between a few different NGOs. So, yeah, now, I mean, considering that you do want to stay for the foreseeable future, I wondered what do you foresee for the Trust over the next few years to, to decade? What do you hope to achieve in terms of impact, both for the Trust, but then also thinking about yourself? I know you've mentioned these small wins that you are acknowledging now, but what do you hope for yourself in terms of your work and your impact? Um... I think the short answer to this question, which I consider to be one of the probably existential questions mm. for us, is, um, yeah, like what what's our um what's the aim what's the what's the purpose of us being around? Because mm. many people still think like okay, so hit Mubarak trust. I thought we've done with the recommendations. Mm. So what's the purpose? And I think that's where the problem is because I, I don't think recommendations as such. Uh, from any inquiries and reviews, what I've seen and learned about, at least for the last 30 years, they're never really done and dusted. Mm. And as I said, um, this is like a work in progress always, mm. uh, because once you take off your foot from the pedal, you kind of allow certain uh, things to slip away um, from your focus and slip down the mm. uh, list of your priorities. And um, as I said, my counter question is always um, uh, how to, to these individuals is that um, so all those bigger issues with justice keys for concern about safety, race equality, security and mental health issues, uh, have, they be, have these issues been um, 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 successfully mm. Um, addressed in the prison system and most of them to answer me back is no because yeah. we know these problems still continue mm. and these issues still are challenging issues and I guess for us it's about maintaining legacy for Zaid mm. and making sure that um, his um, death can um, provide opportunities for others um, in some ways that's a, for, for us like giving back mm -hmm. um, and transforming our grief into creating something positive for others mm -hmm. and positive for us as well because once you see uh, prison leavers who work with us or prisoners or families when they get satisfied outcome it's whether it's about their complaint or issue of helping them I think that's what where the positivity and energy comes from uh, for, for us. Um, and that's, um, we just want to continue to make the small changes, remain there as a reminder 
that something like Slide's death can happen um, mm. again if priorities are not right um, and um, in some ways continue to fight for a better systemic, better, better systems. Yeah. And can I ask you a little bit about collaboration? You know, if you've mentioned working in teams a lot, but I, I'm thinking about, you know, cross working in terms of, you know, are there things that you've seen that have worked when NGOs or charities work with academics or work with, you know, the, the policymakers within the prison service, for example? And so I'm thinking for the people who are working in different sections, is there something that you think, for example, the research community has done well to help you or could do better and that would help you in, you know, in enacting in this kind of improved equality in the prison service? Um, yes, I, it's a really good question. And um, I, I personally believe it is about joined up work. Um, we as the campaigners or advocates, we have to use and make use of evidence base. And that's usually evidence base uh, based on your own uh, experiences or your own projects and what you see and what you hear, but also academic evidence, strong academic evidence mm. is really important. And most, I, I guess, you know, most our projects, um, all our projects actually are designed uh, based on what academic evidence says that it works. So it's really important. Mm. And also at the same time, um, even brilliant projects on the ground cannot make change because we are not the ones who run those prisons mm. or who are uh, creating policies. We can just advise, we can give, um, we can kind of push for certain changes. We can advise, we can support individuals who are in charge of making those changes to make right decisions. And that's why I see it as a joined up work. Um, and for me also, it's about getting the right balance between being independent, but also have influence. Mm. Um, so work within the system, but also maintain your independence and influence. So that's, that's where I guess we are trying to um, uh, find the right balance. Yeah, great. And also just kind of it really inspired me to um, um, share with you, I guess, one of the reasons why I agreed today to do this brilliant postcard because I would have been otherwise very shy uh, to do it. It's because of um, the importance of representation. Mm. Um, for me, this is the opportunity to represent many brilliant individuals working in the criminal justice sector, mostly on frontline roles, who were not born in the UK, but now it has become their second homeland. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, minoritized communities, particularly those from the mainland Europe, are significantly underrepresented in leadership positions. And despite yeah. of their brilliant work, some don't always feel that they belong in the UK. Many chose not to engage with the public platforms, but I know how much the representation really means matters to them. Mm -hmm. And for me as well. And I hope that if they hear me speaking today, 
they will start believing in themselves more to take up more leadership roles and be proud of their heritage. Um, I, I usually uh, say like, who says you can't love two countries at the same time? Yeah. It means loving two countries for the good things that each offers to uh, the world, appreciating the uniqueness of each, and also noticing and calling out the areas that fall short of what each can be. Um, and I just want to, um, for them to feel uh, empowered. I think that's a you know, really important message. And yeah, I mean, people use the phrase representation matters a lot now, and it's they do so because it's true. And I think that's a really, you've explained it extremely well. And I'm so glad that you did say yes to, to come on the podcast and don't ever let yourself think that your language skills will stop you doing anything because there's not going to be a single person listening to this that would question you over over that so yeah hopefully you'll go out and represent that group even more and uh, yeah oh, because there are um, a lot of um, um, uh, prison officers I met just few people and senior levels and for them, it meant so much when we were sitting in the rooms and I would make point mm. whilst they did not necessarily felt empowered to yeah. be able to um, share their ways yeah. um, because they did not feel that they were in the right place doing so. But I think we are in the right place because we are doing it for right reasons. We all doing it because we love what we're doing and we love where we live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. No, I think it's a really important message and... Yeah, to, to be able to speak up in those moments and, you know, again, the, another of these phrases about speaking truth to power, but unless the people who've gone through ex those experiences and represent different groups are, the, are able to use their voices, then, yeah, we miss out on, on so much experience. And I think, um, yeah... I could I could listen to you talk about this the whole time, but um, I know that you've listened to a few of the podcasts before, so you know I have a question coming towards yeah. the end. And so, if we were able to arrange a room where we could put whoever you wanted in there, and you had half an hour to talk to them about whatever you wanted to talk to them about, who would you be putting in that room, and what would you be saying to them? Uh. Yes, I, I think that was one of the hardest questions, and you know that's one of the hardest questions, although I had the whole week to think <laughs> about it. Um, and I, I, I think um, I, I, I will start, usually the people I would put in that room would be people who would consider me not their natural partner mm. to work with me, because of the nature of our work, some would say we are working on the other side of the fence and um, we might seem as interested party. And these are the, I think this, I think that's what I'd love to talk to people because everything we do, it's not about, um, it's not about just prisoners. It's about making prisons better places where you can just live throughout your sentence and then when prisons are better places they are better places for staff um, for external agencies who visit mm. and I think this is really important in terms of understanding 
it's not about taking sides. We are saying the same things and our messages are essentially the same. We just need to talk and understand that we have shared values. And I'd love to talk to them and be in the room with them who think that we might be necessarily um, uh, having the same Mm. agenda as they do. (laughs) No, yeah, I think that would be great and really pushing those boundaries. And that's, that's that's the place where people grow, I think. That sounds really interesting. And so for those people who have listened to this and thought this is, you know, they'd love to get involved maybe with the Zoe Mubarak Trust or there's, you know, people working in prisons or students that are listening to this, how would you advise them to to help out with the campaigns that you're working on? Where would you like, where would you send them? What kind of things would you say to them? Um, Yeah, we've got, we are open to, um, people to volunteer with us, to work with us, to get involved in our projects and work. Um, We always are looking for um, right individuals with right ideas and shared values. Um, Anyone who wants to learn about us and what we are about, uh, please do visit our website. And if you think that you fit into our uh, work, I will be more than happy to find a place for you. We are a small team, but we um, always welcome anyone who wants to help out in any way they can. Mm. Um, So I would say start with the website, see who we are, what we stand for. And if you feel passionate about those issues, please do come and uh, talk to us and get in touch. Great. And I'll put a link to the website in the show notes so that make it easy for people to find. Please. Thank you. Brilliant. Katun, thank you so much for taking the time to come and have a chat with me. It's been really interesting and I've, you know, I've, I've known about Zaid Mubarak Trust for a long time and it's such an important work and the, you know, it's such a shame that it's a tragedy that has forced you know, the issue to, to be brought more into the minds of people. But um, I think in terms of the legacy of that work, it's, it's been such important work and... Um, yeah just commend you on the great work that you've been doing with them thank you for having me it's a real privilege no thank you it's been so interesting thank you very much brilliant thanks a lot okay thanks for listening that was the penultimate episode of the series and thank you so much to everybody who has liked or reviewed or tweeted about the podcast please keep doing all of those things my brilliant guests really appreciate it when you do that and i definitely do too so thank you so much for that see you in a couple of weeks for the last episode cheers cheers